The following program contains adult content, violence, and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Welcome to Your Fantasy. Just hours before he was to be sentenced, Chippendale's owner, Soman Banerjee, committed suicide in his jail cell. Were you surprised? Yeah, I, I'd never had a defendant do that on the night before sentencing before. It was, it was, it was shocking. I always tell people don't identify it with your career because I had identified, I mean, I was Michael Rapp from Chippendales, you right. know, and now I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you this, I never once got bored. I never once got tired of going to a show or bored with it. Never. Not after thousands of performances. Everybody would say to me, boy, you really lost out on that Chippendales case. And I said, excuse me? I said, Nick's dead? Steve's dead, I'm still alive. So I knew this day would come. But even as we're at the end of the season, we are so not at the end of the story. There's so many untold stories about Chippendales that we didn't get to fully explore. So in this last episode, we're going to hear from some of the women who made Chippendales the iconic brand that it is today. We're also going to talk about masculinity as it was made in the 1980s and also how it's still with us. Plus, of course, we've got to reflect on the legacy of Steve Banerjee and Nick DeNoia. So in order to do all of this, I invited my fellow co-producers on this show and historians, Nicole Hammer and Neil J. Young to join me. Hey, guys. Hello, Natalia. Hi there. So just to catch you up on where the Chippendales are today, in case you're still stuck in the heyday of the 80s, there's no more Overland Avenue, you know, there's no more Upper East Side at Magique. What there is, is a permanent show in Vegas, which the pandemic prevented us from visiting, but there's also a traveling show. And Nikki and I went to that traveling show together in Riverhead, Long Island back in 2019. Nikki, remember that? Uh, I was told what happened at the Chippendales show stays at the Chippendales show. You know, I can talk about some of the things that happened. I guess, I guess. Um, So yeah, we all loved working on this podcast so much. It piqued so many of our research interests. You know, big questions about feminism and gender. Is role reversal possible? And if so, what does it even mean? And how these men who made their money and their careers and their identity based on being the hot guy, how they feel about aging. I really love that we're talking about that because I don't think we talk enough about men's very complicated relationship to aging. Well, I would make an amendment to that. I think you don't hear that a lot from heterosexual men. Uh, I think this is a topic of great conversation for gay men like myself as they age. And I think we'll think more about what sexuality and heterosexuality means to the history of Chippendales as we talk together um, today. So wait, let's back up and talk a little bit about our specific areas of expertise and how we got into Chippendale studies, if you will. (laughs) Um, So we're historians, and I think we all kind of love the subject because it crosses over into so many of the areas that each of us study independently and that kind of um, are at the intersection of our interests too. So I think by now, listeners, you know me, I study 1970s California, and I'm writing a book about fitness culture. I wrote another one about the culture wars. So that kind of is where I come into it. But Nikki, how about you? What appealed to you about reporting on this? So I come to this from the world of conservatism and media. And one of the things that has been so fascinating to me is what happens to feminism over the course of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. How do you get from that radical feminism of the early 1970s um, to in the 1990s, you have conservative women 
calling themselves feminist. And I actually think Chippendales is kind of one of the answers to that, right? This is a very de-radicalized feminism. This is a very consumer-based feminism. And it's, you know, questionably not even feminist at all. And so thinking about how Chippendales chews up feminism and spits it out on the other side is actually really fascinating. Right. How about you, Neil? Well, I'm a historian of American religion and politics in this same time period. And, you know, I think often about how changing ideas of sexuality and gender in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in the culture had political consequences and really mobilized a political transformation that we know as the Reagan revolution and the rise of the modern GOP and modern conservatism, I think a lot of times when I think about those changing ideas about sex and gender, it kind of remains in the abstract for me. Yeah. And so there's something about like really spending all this time with a very specific example of Chippendales and seeing sort of all the through lines and how that would be a real thing of concern for the sort of cultural and religious conservatives I'm used to spending a lot of time with. The full frontal angle, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I had to. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start with the women. What did they think? How did Chippendales make them feel about themselves? And why did they keep going back? Or not? Chippendales men were the top of the line. Absolutely gorgeous, beautiful men, the best costumes, nicely tailored pair of black slacks. Um, A lot of times they didn't have any shoes on. And then a big muscly man that's kind of gleaming with oil and a bow tie and just the most beautiful face (laughs) and body that you've ever seen. You definitely made sure that you had several $1 bills and they'd come over and it it was titillating. <laughs> I don't know how to say it, but it was really exciting to see this beautiful man dancing right in front of you. I'm surprised I made it out of the 80s without a DUI or a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> I think it's so important to understand how crucial women were to the success of Chippendales. I mean, I remember when I was interviewing Michael Rapp, you know, the perfect man, and he had this comment. He said, women were really the show. And, you know, I think that just speaks volumes about how you could have the best choreography and the perfect lighting and all these drinks with sexy names. But really, the experience of Chippendales and the longevity of the brand was about more than that. It was about the women and what they brought to that space, too. Yeah. If there's not an audience, this isn't possible at all, right? The show doesn't go on. And so it's really important to think about why this particular historical moment allows for that audience to be there. There's both a sort of cultural freedom that these women are tapping into. I mean, this is a decade that's launched in a lot of ways by Helen Reddy's famous anthem, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. Numbers too big to ignore. 
So we have more and more career women in these decades or women who are working, who are delaying marriage. And so they have expendable income that they can spend on nights like this. Then there's also, I think, this celebration of, you know, women paying their own way and spending their hard-earned money as they like. But in terms of what Chippendales was selling, yes, it's a response to women's purchasing power and new sexual freedom and all that. But they're selling a very old-fashioned version of heteronormative masculinity as brawny and powerful and there to kind of, you know, whisk the damsel off her feet. And women are paying for that. I know I'm going to say this again and again, but it sure does sound like the fantasy that's being fulfilled is the dancer's fantasy. Um, yes, absolutely. And I think that that idea of whose fantasy is being fulfilled is really important here. You know, we've talked about women now having this purchasing power and all of their money flowing into this club. And the question becomes, is this women's liberation or is this the commodification of the idea of women being freer, of women having more resources? I think mostly choice B, but a little (laughs) bit of both. It reminds me about this interview I did with a woman named Mimi Seaton. She was a journalist in the late 70s for LA Weekly, and she went to Chippendales in the early days to check it out. And let me tell you, she was not impressed. Listen to a little bit of our conversation. What did we see? We saw men scantily clad doing rather awkward dances, meaning they weren't good dancers. They think it's sexy to jiggle their leather region in your face, and I don't think that's sexy. I associate that with a kind of puerile and immature level of male development. It's masturbatory. It's 12 years old. Mm -hmm. At the moment, because it was fresh and new, uh, I think the women were enjoying it because they had so much pent-up sexual energy to let off. It was like the guys were letting, uh, taking the cap off a pipe full of steam and letting the hot air out. Yeah, reading your article, I was like, wow, she really got it back then. And, you know, because most so much of what was written about Chippendales at the time by the men behind it themselves, but also by some women were, you know, this is finally the sexual revolution, you know, comes to the nightclub scene. I'm sorry, but I really don't think they were concerned about our freedom and and our rights and our development. Um, No. They threw a little hook out with some bait on it and they got a huge chomp and they threw more bait. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's getting by Mimi. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that what Mimi was onto is the sort of downbeat about this idea that this is a fantasy that they're selling because Chippendales is selling women's empowerment and for many women in their real lives, women's empowerment is still kind of a fantasy during the 1970s and 1980s. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, this very academic theory by the historian Natalie Simon Davis, where she talks about, like, containing radicalism with these, like, very concrete role reversal events, right? That, like, mm-hmm. you don't have to, like, give them equal pay or, like, actual empowerment or power because, you know, a few nights a week, they can go to Chippendales and pretend and stuff dollars in male male G-strings. And that sort of explicit reversal there saps the power or the need to actually have sustained uh, power in their actual lives. All right. Well, I feel like we can't bring up this topic of role reversal events without mentioning my favorite, which is the Gloria Allred story here and the feminist backlash that ensued. 
Yeah, this Gloria Allred story was one of the first reasons that made me want to pitch this podcast <laughs> to begin with. Like, I'm like, wait a minute, Gloria Allred had a fundraiser at right? Chippendales? Yeah. <laughs> so here's the deal. In 1980, um, Gloria Allred, the feminist attorney, she holds a fundraiser at Chippendales for what was called World Deaf, which was a legal defense and education fund for women who were victims of domestic violence. And um, she holds it there. It's 15 bucks a pop. I think there are about 500 women who show up. And the idea is that these feminists are having a fundraiser at Chippendales, with the presumption being that Chippendales is an extension of their feminist purpose. Not everybody agreed. Yeah. And first of all, this got a ton of press attention, which you have to think was always part of Gloria Allred's uh, goals and the things she took up. But, you know, the Los Angeles Times is writing a bunch of stories about this. Other Los Angeles papers are and the sorts of things that other activist women in Los Angeles have to say about this show. So you have people who said basically, look, you, you don't lower yourself to men's levels. Objectification is objectification. And another woman who worked at a rape crisis center said exactly that, that there was this caricature of feminists of now it's their turn to kind of have revenge and power over men. And so they thought it was a really bad idea for Allred to hold a feminist event there because it only perpetuated that caricature. She said, like, lighten up. So the show went on. (laughs) Well, we should talk a little bit more about the show because at one point, one of the dancers comes over and lifts up her skirt and she shrieks because she obviously didn't consent to that happening. And they didn't have as much space to be the ones in power as they thought. Yeah. I mean, that dancer fulfilled what many of Alred's critics were predicting would happen. Right. And I think it's really, again, telling that the activists around domestic violence and around sexual assault, like they knew that that sort of moment was very possible. I mean, that dancer showed that at the end of the day, the men were still running the show. So Mimi and Gloria were just two women who went to Chippendales in a sort of professional capacity. But I also talked to women who went for fun, and they all had really different experiences that I think we should talk about. I'll start with Rosanna. Rosanna Leisure was a forklift operator in Southern California, and she went to Chippendales just one time in the 80s for a co-worker's bachelorette party. At that time, she hadn't come out yet, and she finds herself at this aggressively heterosexual performance and has a response that even surprises her. I was basically mainly watching my friends, how they were acting. Like, wow, they're really into this. And... I can appreciate a beautiful body. I mean, a beautiful face. And so when they did come out, I was like, oh, wow, they are beautiful. And so for me, knowing that I'm gay inside my heart and feeling really kind of awkward for me. But I enjoyed it as much as I mm-hmm. I could. You know, I thought, well, let's, let's just do this and let's just go with it. And nothing bad's going to happen. It was fun. It was fun, actually. It made you feel beautiful inside because it's kind of like it's it's this is a weird way to describe it i don't know you know when you go to church and the preacher's talking and the preacher's giving his sermon and you think he's talking directly at you that's what it felt like when you looked at them you felt like they were only looking at you and nobody else 
I heard this and I was like, Nick succeeded. I mean, do you remember that tape where Nick says, it's one thing to turn on one woman. You've got to turn on 500 women in the room and you've got to make every one of them, you know, feel special. And that's what all the men told me when I talked to them, that literally their training was not like this really rigid training, but the basic idea was every woman in there has to feel special. And it's so interesting that that's happening at a strip show, right? You think that you're going to this show to look at men, to objectify them, to experience them. And yet what is being made visible here is the women themselves, right? Like direct your attention to the women, make them visible so that they're not some, you know, faceless person in a crowd, but like the actual object of attention, the focus, Okay, but not all the women I talked to enjoyed that attention. Here's a woman named Abby Rosen who went to a show in New York in the 90s and who had a really different experience from Rosanna. Abby went to Chippendales with her friend to celebrate the fact that Abby was about to get married. My friend left me and she went to a guy that looked like Fabio and she gave him money and then he came over to... um, be appealing to me, to grind them on me. I, I, I don't know. They didn't do lap dances, but they were like, they got really close. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like feeling like, look, take a step back. I just remember feeling very um, invaded. You know, it's not genuine. It's not like, it's not like, oh, he was hitting on me because I'm so beautiful. Yeah. And wow, look how, look at that. This guy with this great body and a bow tie without a shirt on thinks I'm so beautiful. And oh, right. I'm so, I'm so flattered. No, my friend went and gave him money to come over and do it. I mean. <laughs> I also think it brings up real questions of consent because uh, what are the assumptions these men have of what the women have consented to just by showing up and buying a ticket for entry? Like, is everything on the table and available once they've entered into this show? You know, I'm just going here to watch these men do something. I didn't expect me to be involved in it. I have to say, I'm so glad that you brought up the word consent because there was something visceral that I experienced when I heard her tell this story where it just made my skin crawl because she clearly is narrating an experience in which she doesn't want this contact happening. And once you put the framework of consent over that, you can understand why she's completely shutting down. You know, there's another type of woman's perspective I'm really interested in. We met this woman uh, because she was the Uber driver for one of our producers when we were out on one of our research trips to Los Angeles. Is this going to turn into a Tom Friedman story? (laughs) It turned out that she'd been a mud wrestler on the circuit in Los Angeles in the 70s and early 80s. My name is Gina Duke. I'm also known as Diamond Duke. So Diamond Duke, or Gina as I know her, didn't do mud wrestling at Chippendales, but she did it at some of the other rival clubs in Los Angeles. So first of all, mud wrestling was huge for a couple of years in the late 70s. As the disco scene was kind of fading, a lot of these nightclubs were looking for different ways to bring men into them. Men would come and watch women in very skimpy clothing wrestle with each other and get really down and dirty. But Gina talked a lot about how she found it to be really empowering because she thought really the joke was kind of on these men. They vid, and the highest bidder gets to go in the mud with the girl, 
And then they're usually so drunk that it's so easy and it's so much fun. Everybody has such a good time watching you kick their butt. They'd be all drunk and, you know, with their mouth open and trying to kiss us and hug us. And we just go, wham, (laughs) and then get behind them and go, wham. It makes it actually make sense also why this was something that was put on at Chippendales, like to have a mud wrestling show and a male strip show at the same club on different nights. I think we originally thought of that as like, oh, all the random stuff they're doing, but there's actually a real continuum. And I guess, you know, maybe there was not a tension in that, according to Gina Duke. And as a young woman who was a single mother of two young girls, you know, she said that it was a really easy way for her to go out for a night or two and make a couple hundred dollars um, and, you know, not even have to clean up the mess afterwards. Especially a mom, right? Exactly. Like, I don't have to clean up this shithole. <laughs> exactly. All right, I could talk about this forever, but we got to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to dig more into masculinity and Chippendales. Let's dig into masculinity, (laughs) y'all. Hi, my name is Alan. So my mom had this VHS tape that said Chippendales. I'm like, I love cartoons. So I'm thinking it was Disney's Chippendale, Chippendale, I put it in, and lo and behold, it is this video of these um, Chippendales on Maury Povich, and I watch again, just enthralled, and little Alan was trying to figure out why they're so pretty, and for like a couple of years or so, I sometimes pull it out and kind of watch it, because, you know, I'm a burgeoning gay person living in uh tiny farm in South Dakota. So um, my grandma was taking care of us one night and um, my grandma asked me what we like to watch. And I'm like, my mom loves Chippendales. And she's like, oh, that's a great cartoon. I'm like, no, it's not that. It's male dancers. And my grandma's like, oh, okay. And I never got to see that tape ever again. All right, we're back. Roundtable with Nikki and Neil, my fellow historians. Let's do this. I actually need to break in with a pretty important point about the 1988 elections. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is mostly known for George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis, but I think we've really missed the major third-party candidate, and that is Michael Rapp. He's the lead dancer at Chippendales. (laughs) However, because our economy is in such dire straits, Mr. Rapp is looking for a day job. He would like to run for president of the United States. His intentions are for a better America. He wants what you want. Mr. Rapp, do you have anything to add? No. Well, there you have it. Michael Rapp for president. He wants what you want. He has my vote. He doesn't actually win, which is disappointing, uh, but he does make it back onto the talk show circuit. Are you going to continue dancing in a G-string while you campaign for president? If I do get elected, we're going to have a big party at the White House. And we're going to, yeah, everyone's invited. So I think, you know, if Michael Rapp running for president kind of embodies the high point of what a Chippendales dancer's life could be, um, 
at the same time, there were men who were quickly being disabused of the idea that this was the best idea ever. I mean, one guy I talked to, he said, like, I pictured these guys would be pulling up to the club in limousines and instead they're on skateboards, you know? And I thought that was just such a sort of puncturing of a particular fantasy that had nothing to do with the women, really, but it had to do with the money that they made and also the lives that they led. It's so clear to me that that dominant um, kind of archetype of the money-making man was so core to these guys' fantasies about themselves, particularly because they're involved in something so not conventionally masculine, right? Like shaking their asses for dollars and not even that many dollars when you think about the scheme of things. You know, what strikes me, Natalia, is you talk about these changing ideas of masculinity and how much gay culture influenced the changing ideas of masculinity. And it's so fascinating that it takes place at Chippendales, which is this almost suffocatingly heteronormative space, that it is part of helping to filter in the norms of gay culture into straight male culture um, and to forge this new kind of masculinity. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, a big place where that happens, not on the Chippendale stage, is at the gym. And that's where all these guys are hanging out all the time. If only we had a fitness scholar here to walk us through that. (laughs) Well, I am glad to step up in that (laughs) role as your friendly neighborhood fitness scholar. And yeah, I think that you make a really good point, Nikki, about the way that aspects of gay culture and particularly gay body culture are being filtered into a kind of mainstream heteronormative masculinity. I mean, when we look at celebrities in this period, on the one hand, you have the rise of, you know, people like Richard Gere or Don Johnson or Tom Cruise, who are sort of like put together and like proto- Pretty boys. Yeah. Thanks for saying it, Neil. Like, um, and I think that's really right. But, you know, what you have happening at the same time also are these like really ripped action hero types like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator and a whole slew of other movies where that big ripped body ceases to be something that is seen as the province of like gay male physique magazines and more something that's associated with kind of like aggressive hetero male power. And I think the chip and are really both kind of, you know, products of that and engines of that. I have to throw in one more star, and that's Patrick Swayze. Not only because he was in the Chippendales um, Saturday Night Live skit, but he was in the movie Dirty Dancing. My favorite movie ever. Because it's so great, right? And that's like in 1987. He's a a part of that same like smoother but very fit male star, right? Because when he's dancing in Dirty Dancing, he's slicked up. He's pretty hairless chest-wise. He doesn't have any facial hair. He is one of those pretty boys of the 1980s and very much uh, the connective tissue of this transition in American masculinity. One thing about what he's wearing in that movie, really tight t-shirts, tight jeans. think about it all the time, Neil. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Call that up from the back of your mind. (laughs) But I I think it's worth thinking about what that means in the 80s when you have like oversized jeans, you have oversized sweater, and yet the aesthetic we see coming, and again, I think a lot of this is coming out of gay culture, is a much more fitted form that we see showing up in these movies and that is obviously shaping the aesthetic of Chippendales. But I think in terms of, again, the gay influence on that, in the 80s, the sculpted body form was held up as the most desirable
desirable one to have because in the age of AIDS um, and the emaciated body of those who were struggling with the disease, um, having big muscles was an important way that gay men thought they should show that they were quote unquote healthy. And so that aesthetic has a real particular politics in the 1980s coming both from those action films that are about anti-communism, it's worth remembering, but also from gay culture. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this leads me to think about a question that I always ask the guys. What do you think the biggest misconception about the Chippendales is out there? That we're gay or that we're dumb? Okay. And that was so funny. That was always, I heard all you guys are gay. Oh, really? Okay. Who told you that? Another guy? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he told you. So you would hear that a lot? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Girls would come because there were all the misconceptions. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they got that idea. I mean, I don't know why any gay guy would want to dance in front of thousands of women. But there must have been gay Chippendales, right? Only backup dancers. No, no leads. Really? Never. So that was Michael Rapp, perfect man, right? Mm -hmm. And um, when he says that, it's totally wrapped up in the history of fitness and a specific history of a kind of dominant assumption that a man who spends that much time on his body is insufficiently masculine. Especially the dancers, they seemed obsessed with talking about that the number one question they got when they went on the talk shows was whether or not they were gay. And that was really intriguing to me. And I have to to say, as a person who sat in the TV and film archives at UCLA for several days, I did not find one talk show appearance where any person in the audience asked any dancer whether or not they were gay. I mean, that just stuck out to me so much that that is this sharp memory they have of their own experience that actually we don't see from the historical record itself, or at least not from the talk shows. Yeah, well, where you do see it in the historical record is in the archive of our interviews. And yet it was an ongoing question for Chippendales of whether or not to allow men to come to the show because of the expectation that if they did, those men would be gay. And I I get it why they were asking that. But looking at it as a historian and also as a gay man myself, like it always struck me as so funny because the idea that a gay man in Los Angeles would want to go to Chippendales in the late 70s or the early 80s when there were full nude strip bars for gay men that had been around for two decades at that point. Like this idea that Chippendales was some great new opportunity, but like gay men are living very vibrant cultural mm-hmm. lives in Los Angeles in the 70s and the 80s. They do not need the Chippendales for a good night out. Yeah, so really early in my reporting, actually, before I had even had the pleasure of attending a Chippendales uh, show myself, I actually mm-hmm. interviewed one of those early former out gay backup dancers. His name is Gregory Ramos. He's now a theater professor at the University of Vermont. And just like you said, Neil, he agreed with what you said about how much a gay man would really like to spend time hanging out at Chippendales. Well, I don't know if this answer is true of all gay men of my generation, but that is like the last fucking place that I would want to go. Oh, tell me why. (laughs) You know, it's a space for women, but it was a very heteronormative energy and space. There was no queerness. It felt like a really straight club. I don't know if you've kept up with what the Chippendales look like today. Do you know at all what the show looks like today? The show? Yeah. I didn't even know there was a show. I'm just kind of responding with my knowledge of kind of what Chippendales was back in the day. And if it's that same kind of show, it's like, ew, really? Are we still like propagating these kinds of like 
heteronormative or binary notions of what it means to be men and women and what, in my estimation, are really kind of old ways of being and behaving about gender. I would say, yes, we are still doing that. I have to say one other thing about this, which is about our own relationship to this question, because there was a point in time when we were deep, deep into the research. And you said to me, every single time I tell someone I'm working on this, the first question I get is, were the Chippendales gay? And I said to you, I've told a lot of my friends as well, I'm working on this, and not one person has asked me that question. And I think that like that's just an interesting thing to think about too. Yeah. I also just wonder how much of this is a sort of current mindset that is projected onto the past, because it was hard for me to really believe that women and men in the 1980s were thinking about this all the time. I mean, gay men and women did not have the sort of cultural visibility that they have today that I think that they were at the forefront of straight Americans' consciousness in such a way that they would be framing their experience of Chippendales through this, you know, lens of homosexuality. So this is always one of the struggles that we have as historians, and particularly in oral history, how much of what we are asking and and hearing from the people we interview is the real recollection of events as they experience them in the time and how much of it are events that they now understand from the perspective of hindsight and the cultural knowledge that they've gained through the last couple of decades. So whenever I tell people that I'm working on a project about the Chippendales, they're like, wait, so you're spending all this time with all these male strippers? And I quickly say they're mostly like 65 years old (laughs) at this point. And it's a kind of funny moment because that's not exactly what they pictured. But um, one of the things that was so interesting in reporting this story was I actually love talking to the older dancers. I talked to some young ones, too, because they have such an interesting perspective on getting older. And when you've made your career and your mark in the world for being hot. What is it like to age, right? This was something I was really excited to ask the Chippendales men about. And one of them, Michael Peel, told me about this like epiphany moment when he was modeling, as many of these men did, and he got booked on a um, TV commercial for Hair Club for Men. That is like quintessential 80s. And he was cast as the balding guy. And I was like, what the hell? You know, and I said to my agent, you know, why me? My hair isn't even really thing. It's like, I know, but that's our target market. I remember looking in like a three-way mirror and going, wow, is that what people are seeing? And just like a cold splash of water in the face. Yeah. Just so interesting to hear men talk about that relationship to their body, to beauty, to expectations of physical standards. You know, and I think those are particularly vexed in a place like Los Angeles, but we often don't hear it talked about from men. Talk about your role reversals. Yeah, seriously, not the one Banerjee promised. I was impressed with the level of introspection and thoughtfulness that they had about themselves and their career. And, you know, maybe that was a function of them being willing to be interviewed, where they happened to be people who just were really articulate about their lives and had thought about it a lot. And so it's not surprising that they have spent a lot of time thinking about what it meant to them. 
You know, one of the ones that I think really stands out for me is Scott Lane. We visited him at his home in Burbank. And, you know, it's just in meeting these people, you realize there's so much more than just the calendar or just the performance. There's these rich lives behind them that in a lot of ways, I think, illuminate so many of the historical trends we're interested in ourselves. He actually, I think, greeted us by telling us he's an ass man. (laughs) Uh, He did say that. A traditional greeting. (laughs) And he's one of the only guys still in the business. He runs a male strip show called The Hollywood Men in Hollywood. And he told me about how much sun damage he sustained over all the years of tanning, how now he's gotten into microneedling and Botox. In fact, I just had some done yesterday. I keep going back to them for that because my wife doesn't like these monster wrinkles here between my eyebrows. Are these you don't here? Like a day over 25. I'm 58. So. And yeah, I look good. I look better than half the dancers as far as I'm concerned. I'm in yeah. great shape. And I, I think I look better now than I, than I ever have. I feel better now than I've ever had. That's a good feeling to have, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I want to know what kind of future there is in this. I mean, what, what can you do when, you, when you're too old to take off your clothes? Yeah. He's working for a living? They're drug free. That, huh? What? He's making lots of money. <laughs> how, how much money do they make? How much do you make? They want to know. He's not a public servant. He doesn't have to show you his W two form. What does the job pay? You make okay. a high average living. Okay. It, it varies. It depends. When a guy starts, he starts at uh, the lowest uh, the rung of the ladder. As he's as he develops, as he's more valuable, he gets paid more. What about chips, though? Don't they get an awful lot of Well, let's talk about the magical healing powers of capitalism, because that's the part of the story that I am absolutely enthralled by, Natalia. The idea Mm -hmm. that, you know, we don't always talk about Chippendales as sex work, but we do talk about it as an immensely popular, and by popular, I mean immensely money-making kind of organization. And it's fascinating, right, the way that sex work gets reframed as capitalism, gets reframed as just another money-making opportunity, because when it's Mm. women in sex work, no one's talking about capitalism. Nobody is talking about, Mm. oh, what smart business women these are. And when these guys talk about it, they talk about it as I'm an entrepreneur, um, but also, like, it feels great. I get to have sex all the time, which is also mm-hmm. not something that you necessarily hear from women sex workers. I think that's, that's changed some with the rise of sex positivity, but it's just not the way that we're conditioned to think about it. So I was so fascinated by the way that these men talked about sex work as work. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I asked of every single dancer that I interviewed was what their parents thought about it. And maybe that says more about me than it (laughs) says about them, that I kept asking them that question. But almost every single one of them said, oh, my parents didn't have a problem with this. They knew I was working hard, making good, clean money. Yeah, they didn't really think it was like the thing they'd always wanted me to go into, but they understood it was a stepping stone on a career toward, you know, entertainment or to towards business or towards whatever. But like, they knew I was working hard. They knew I was making decent money. Again, capitalism can kind of cover all sins. But I do think there's a particular context for what that would have meant in the 1980s, right? This mm-hmm. period of, yes, resurgent conservatism, especially the growth of the religious right, but also what else is happening in this decade? It's the high point of American capitalism. 
greed is good. And I think there's a way in which like all of these things are not divergent or even in Mm -hmm. in conflict with each other, but actually in some ways reinforcing. Mm -hmm. This is the really important part of the feminism story that I'm so interested in because we're still telling a story of women's liberation, but it's women's liberation that you buy. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is being offered to women to buy with all of those dollars is the experience of liberation, that there is a liberatory aspect of having dollars in your pockets. And I don't want to say that access to resources is not important for liberation, but what what they're being sold is this idea that, no, 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 that's enough. Mm -hmm. Like, you hand over the dollars, you get your experience of liberation, and we've done our part. Capitalism has worked um, as well as it's going to to advance feminism. All right, so we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to get into the Chippendales' legacies we didn't get to explore in the series, and specifically the legacies of the two men at the center of it all. So we're back. Chippendales has been around for 40 years, and what's kept it alive in an enduring piece of our culture for that long is that the show can and has changed with the times. So I want to take a minute to talk about that evolution explicitly. Nick had this musical theater background, and he really brought that aesthetic to his show. Let's take a listen to his finale number. Let me tell you, it's not exactly Genuine's Pony. And it's I never, I never get. I mean, this is supposed to be a strip show, (laughs) y'all. Remember earlier when I said that it had gotten more Broadway? This Mm. is as Broadway as Chippendales has ever been. It's wild. So that was Nick's show, but when he leaves and Steve Merritt comes in, let's just say that the aesthetic changes a lot. I want to talk about the show that's the inspiration for the name of this podcast. That show was called Welcome to My Fantasy. Yeah, that show was choreographed by a guy named Steve Merritt, who Banerjee hired in 1985 after Nick left, and who, by the way, was himself openly gay. And the aesthetic that he brought to Chippendales, because it was a real change from the Nick DeNoya era. Nick DeNoya was very much Broadway, jazz hands, all that stuff. So, you know, I think we all kind of agree that Steve Merritt's show is just freaking awesome. And I'll tell you that, you know, I don't have a very high-minded reason for loving it, except that I am a child of the 80s. And, like, all that, it's like an 80s, a sexed-up 80s teen movie. Like, it feels like Fast Times at Ridgemont High with music and abs. Like, it's just, I love it. I I just want to listen to those songs. Well, I'd just really like to underline the point here that for all the sort of hand-wringing about gay men's involvement in the Chippendales and the question of that. Ultimately, it's a gay man making a really great show here. Arguably, I would say the best one. So wait, can we talk about my favorite song from Steve Merritt's show? I saw it in this promotional tape that they made called Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Also, you yeah. can watch that on YouTube, but you definitely should go watch it. It's called Room Service. Yeah. 
Well, can you describe for us, Natalia, what room service was like? So room service, the plot is this woman. I think she's like a businesswoman. She's traveling alone and she checks in to a hotel by herself and she orders room service and she gets um, delivered this like super hot guy under the pretense that he's coming with food, but he's bringing a lot more. And um, yeah, and the song is just really, really catchy. Musically, it sounds like it could be any kind of 80s song. It feels very different from like jazz hands. And you get into more like kind of like the pop of the era and like synthesizers. And you don't have these grandiose costumes. The men are in like real clothes. Well, what I think is interesting about that is we're seeing the adaptability of Chippendales. And that is part of the the key to its longevity is its ability to adapt to the new cultural media and cultural forms. And so if there was a particular genius to the original idea that Steve Banerjee and Nick DeNoia came up with, it was that they created something that could change and that it could adapt and still have the core iconography of like the the bow tie and the cuffs, but adapt to the tastes of the time. The other big trend that Banerjee was on top of was backgammon. And I realize we talk about backgammon a little bit in the show, but we need to talk a lot more about it because it was this <laughs> huge fad at the time. And it becomes a fad in the United States thanks to a Russian prince. This is a guy by the name of Prince Alexis Obolensky. And he came to the United States after the Russian Revolution. His whole family fled from Russia in 1917, and they eventually arrive in the U.S. So he grows up here. He'd been born mm-hmm. in 1915. And in the 1960s, he's like trying to find something to do. And he begins to promote backgammon as the next big thing in the early 1960s. And it totally catches on. (laughs) It becomes like this high class, high roller game that everyone is playing. They're playing it in the discos. They're playing it at Playboy Mansion. It's the most amazing thing. I will say I noticed on the this summer that in the Hamptons on the beach, these chic people are like playing backgammon. And I wonder if it's having it's coming a back, comeback. Baby. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the men of Chippendales we usually think of as we've been talking of as the dancers. But I also really want to know what you two think about the men behind the act, right? The men who founded and created really this brand. And one of the areas of research I found so interesting was looking at Steve Banerjee, not just as this entrepreneur behind Chippendales, but also as this Bengali immigrant who came, you know, after the 1965 Immigration Act, allowed a lot of Indian immigrants to come to the United States. I remember telling Steve Energy's story to friends, particularly like other Indians or other South Asians more broadly. And there was a lot of like, why haven't I heard this before? Wait, is this real? Just the idea that, wait, Chippendales is one of ours. I got to talk to this writer and researcher, Anirvan Chatterjee, and he's long known about uh, Banerjee and been kind of obsessed with him. The thing that I found fascinating was the fact that uh, I had never heard of him before in a community context. And Within my immigrant community, like I had heard about Bengali entrepreneurs like Dr. Amar Bosch, the, the person who founded both the the speakers, you know, um, that was just like a really well-known brand that was created by a, um, a, somebody from a Bengali immigrant family. Mm-hmm. I mean, j- just founding the Chippendales, just that in and of itself. Steve Energy feels like a little bit like that immigrant trickster figure, um, but in 
trickster in kind of a good way, like like smart and creative and willing to look at something with fresh eyes. But Chatterjee talks about Banerjee as in some ways being this quintessential success story by these the very terms that animated and inspired so many other South Asian immigrants. But he says that, you know, in some ways there was this narrowness in that vision of what was acceptable. There's a sense of achievement or what kinds of achievements matter for a lot of um, immigrants, particularly those who were coming to the U.S. around the time that Steve Banerjee showed up. They grew up in India and they grew up in kind of an immigrant community that would really respect or valorize like doctors or lawyers or engineers or or a certain kind of business people. And Steve Energy's story, I mean, Steve Energy is somebody who did not look like that at all. It's just a little bit strange because he's so much like other immigrants in some ways. He starts a business. He finds his place in the community. He he finds ways to have cultural impact. He just takes it a step further than other people around him would. And, I mean, it's one thing to work incredibly hard. It's one thing to do the jobs that other people would not be willing to do. It's another thing to murder <laughs> and, and all the yeah. kind of super shady things that uh, Steve Energy ended up doing. It's so interesting because he seems to have cracked the code of American culture. He understood American racism. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw that in the way that he treated black dancers and black customers. Um, he understood American Puritanism, right? The ways that he could play the religious right off of the the news media. He really got it on a deep level. His his sort of worshiping of Disney World or Disneyland, of Walt yeah. Disney. Yeah. And the other code that Banerjee cracked was the code of American capitalism. And that is that there actually aren't any rules. Whatever you can get away with to make money, as long as you don't get caught, you're actually going to be just fine. And I think that that drove a lot of his business choices because he saw that's the way that American capitalism worked. And there's sort of a way in which I think Banerjee, even as he was becoming more and more successful, success felt elusive to him. And I think, you know, in some ways that is just a striver mentality. I think anyone who is ambitious, who wants more and more and more, there's never enough. And in that way, Banerjee feels like deeply, deeply American to me. But I also think it helps us understand the certain choices he made, particularly in those last years. How do you think of Nick in that light in terms of his legacy or as a foil to Banerjee and what he represents? Well, I think he's certainly fundamental to that legacy, the this, the fact that Chippendales is still around. I mean, he was such an important person in developing the Chippendales brand and what they stood for and what they did. As much as these two men were often opposed to each other, and I think in a lot of ways, both of them were such ambitious men. And I think that was really what connected them, even as it was at the heart of their conflict. I mean, Nick is a kid who is breaking out of his home to run into the city and see broad way shows like he wants to be a performer he wants to to be a broadway star and he wants to be a director who's known and i think in those ways that sort of striving mentality um is not unique to nick but is something that connects them deeply together but i think the way that they're different is that Nick wants to be known as a creative genius. It's less for him about making sure that he has more money than God and more about his reputation in a way. 
Um, and you see that being a real friction point between him and Banerjee because all of a sudden Nick is claiming credit for things that Banerjee thinks are rightfully his. Um, I have to say, I got kind of emotionally attached to Nick in making this podcast and meeting all these members of his family, sitting in his family's kitchen there in South Jersey, that there was not only the tragedy of losing this important part man in their family, but also the tragedy that this is what he died for. I do think the thing he really wanted to get back to is Broadway. Yeah. I mean, that's where he started in theater and, and musicals. And so, you know, in some ways, I think that he would appreciate the Vegas show because of all the ways in which Vegas has been so dramatically changed. I mean, you could almost say that Vegas is one Broadway show after another these days. And so I think that he would appreciate what it represents that Chippendales is a Vegas act in the way that that would have such different meaning in, in the 70s or the 80s. So I have to ask you both, you know, we've worked on this podcast like for almost two years. What's the main thing that you're going to take away from this? What will you carry with you from all you know about Chippendales and its legacies? I think in thinking about it as a phenomenon, you know, I'm a historian who thinks a lot about political movements, about religious movements. Um, and I think one of the things I've been thinking so much about is how Chippendales and understanding Chippendales as a iconic pop culture brand um, and the development of it. You know, there's this tension as historians for many of us between the bold face big letter names that everyone knows and the people on the ground, you know, the grassroots activists who make change. And where does history happen? And I think a lot of us feel like it's somewhere in between. This may feel like a stretch, but like Chippendales was a really interesting way to think about that phenomenon. Mm -hmm. How does something happen where, yes, there are important figures here. Chippendales wouldn't be the same if it hadn't been led and created by Steve Banerjee, if Nick DeNoya hadn't made his imprint on it. But it also wouldn't have been the same if those thousands of women hadn't come into the club, into the show, shown up for the tour, and helped make and remake Chippendales themselves, not to say anything of the larger American culture that received Chippendales um, and made for it what they wanted it to be and sent it back into the world um, to continue to reverberate. Yeah, I mean, there are so many little moments that I'll remember. I mean, remember when we were down in lower Manhattan pawing through all of the case files, there was something very, you know, true crime about that that felt pretty cool. But the thing that I'll always remember are the women and the way that they turn the space that was just meant to sell them an experience and invested real meaning in it. Um, and not just invested real meaning in it in the 1970s and 1980s, but also like the women in Long Island yeah. who were just heading out for a night um, that they would remember. I remember going home for Christmas and my mom shared with me a photo of her with Chippendale dancers. And it was for her what it was for these women as well, right? Like this one memorable night. But in having that one memorable night, they were participating in this phenomenon that stretches back 
decades. So, you know, I riffed a little bit on this in the last episode about like what this means to me as one, just a woman and a person who grew up during this era and, you know, remembers Chippendales as a little girl or on SNL. And and so one of the main things that I think I'll take away from this is this even firmer commitment to the idea that, you know, pop culture topics that so many people just think of as a punchline or a throwaway or, you know, a joke that actually they can be lenses into the most important, most serious issues and dynamics that shape a historical moment. And I mean, usually when I say I'm working on this show, like the first answer is kind of like, oh, how fun, you know, depending who I'm talking to. And trust me, it is really, really fun. And I have loved doing this, but it's also to me a lens on the things that we care about most. And I think it's a really good reminder that things that you encounter at the mall or at the store or in your everyday life that don't seem important with a capital I can actually be the keys to understanding really profound things about human experience. And if we have convinced anyone of that through this podcast beyond just like a cool, sexy murder story, then I think we have done something really important. Welcome to Your Fantasy is a production of Pineapple Street Studios in association with Gimlet. It's hosted by me, Natalia Petrozella. Our senior producer is Eleanor Kagan. Our producer is Christine Driscoll, and our associate producer is Erin Kelly. Nicole Hemmer and Neil J. Young are consulting producers. Our editors are Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprong-Kaiser. It was mixed by Hannes Brown and fact-checked by Ben Phelan. This show features original music by Dow and Anthony, and thanks to our music supervisor, Jasmine Flott. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. From Gimlet, our executive producer is Lydia Polgreen, and our editor is Colin Campbell. We've got a Spotify playlist with tons of music from the original show, so you can create the club experience for yourself in the comfort of your own home. You can find the link in the show notes. For behind-the-scenes footage, photos, clips, and more, check out our Instagram account, Chippendales Revealed. That's our handle, Chippendales Revealed. Did you ever go to Chippendales? We want to hear about it. Leave us a short voicemail, 30 seconds to a minute tops, at 323-475-9424. This is a Spotify original podcast.